and guide us as we look upon a difficult portion that we find in this chapter here. The last time we looked at this chapter, uh, maybe three or four weeks ago, we dealt with the first uh, 12 verses. We would now want to look at verses 13 to 20. We want to look at that difficult section, seeking the Lord's blessing for us. As the Apostle Paul deals with a, a subject that was important to him and something that he highlighted with the Corinthian church. Just to explain some things, the Corinthians had written a letter to the Apostle Paul asking him various questions about certain subjects and topics. They wanted to know his response to these topics and subjects. And 1 Corinthians, this letter, is a response to that letter that was first sent to the Apostle Paul. But before he dealt with the topics or the concerns of the Corinthian church, he himself raised some concerns he had with the Corinthian church. And this is the last thing that he raises before, in chapter 7, he then begins to deal with the items that were raised by the congregations themselves. So as he's dealing with this subject about fornication, we are to realize and to recognize and to help us understand this passage that fornication was nothing in the Corinthian church. It would seem, in some sense, it was practiced widespread amongst the Christians. Now that might begin to horrify you and I. But again, we need to go back to the background and we need to go to the context. And as the minister has been saying on many occasions, Corinth was a sex-saturated society. And indeed, so was the, the Roman and the Greek world 2,000 years ago. To such an extent that fornication was normal. It was widely practiced. And no one would blink an eye. If a politician, for instance, was caught fornicating, there would be no public outcry. There'd be no headlines in the press or the media. It wouldn't feature in the life of the society at all. And to make things even worse, again, to help us to understand idolatry, the religion of the day, was closely linked to sexual immorality. We don't like to dwell on these things, but it does help us to understand the context. You could go to a pagan temple, practice whatever religious rites you wanted to, to serve the God of the day at that time, and you could also engage in sexual activity with a temple prostitute or indeed a male prostitute. That's the kind of society that 
was in Corinth, and, and in Corinth particularly, but it was not confined to Corinth. The known world at that time, when Paul was founding under God a church at Corinth, was saturated with that kind of behavior. And Christians came out of that context. They came out of that world. And as they do, as every Christian does, when they first begin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? They bring some of their old life with them. They bring some of their baggage with them. And that's what was happening. If you have been following this series, you will know that we dealt with a special kind of fornication that was practiced in the Corinthian church earlier. It was a kind of fornication that was not practiced within the society itself. A man had his stepmother. That was frowned upon in the society. But fornication in general was not. And he dealt with that kind of fornication earlier. We, we looked at it. But now he's dealing with fornication generally amongst the Christians. And as I said, this might in some sense horrify us. But we must remember that we've had around 2,000 years of Christian teaching and Christian ethics. And many of us have been brought up in the church and we know the truths of the Bible. And therefore it does horrify us. But 2,000 years ago in Corinth, these young Christians, and they were Christians, these young Christians did not have the blessings that we enjoy. They did not have the background. And this would surely remind us and encourage us that in that sin-saturated society, God established a Christian church and he called his people out of that kind of lifestyle. He translated them from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. And despite opposition, the Corinthian church was established. And as we know, <clears throat> ultimately, the Roman world was changed upside down. Things that were looked upon as normal soon became unsavory, soon became wrong, and they were banned. Christianity took hold, and lives were changed, communities were changed, nations were changed. The life transforming of the gospel went on and went on. Well, that's the kind of context and the background that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. And the title I want to give to the, our meditation this morning is True Christian Freedom. True Christian Freedom. Why do we give it that title? Well, we give it that title because this was basically one of the arguments of the Corinthians Christians. They were saying, we're free. We're free to do as we like. We've been set free. We can live as we want. And Paul was telling them, no. True Christian freedom doesn't give you the liberty and the freedom to live your life any way you like and to satisfy all your appetites and desires. 
True Christian freedom is to be found in Christ and it is to be found in obeying him and his word and not our appetites, but to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> well, one or two things from this difficult passage for us this morning. As we noticed some time ago, there's a phrase here that runs throughout this chapter. Do ye not know? Do ye not know? It is said in verse 2, verse 3, verse 9, verse 15, verse 16, and verse 19. These words are very similar words are said by the Apostle Paul. Do ye not know? And this would be a reference to the fact that what the Apostle Paul is bringing to them, they should have known. He had been in the Corinthians church for well over 18 months. And he was, he was the founder of that church under God. And these are the things that he had spoken to them about in times past. And he's reminding them, do ye not know these things? You should know these things. And he brings these things to their remembrance. And one of the things that he brings to their remembrance is the principles for the body. The principles for the body. Verse 12, for instance, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He is citing here, I do believe, two statements that would be common in the Corinthian church at this time that would be used to defend their position. All things are lawful unto me and meats for the belly. What are these statements saying? What are these statements that the Corinthian uh, Christians are using to justify their engaging in fornication? All things are lawful unto me. Well, basically what's behind this statement is that the Christians recognize that God has given them appetites. God has given every single one of us appetites. And these are good appetites. We have a, a natural appetite for food. We have a natural appetite for drink, which must be satisfied. And for those who do not have the gift of celibacy, we have a natural appetite for sexual attraction and sexual uh, activity. It's natural. It's what God has put into every single one of us. And we cannot avoid these things. And therefore, what they were saying is, all things are lawful unto me. Therefore, I have appetites. I have an appetite to eat and to drink and to engage in sexual activity. Therefore, I'm free to gratify these appetites. And it goes on, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. God has given us a belly. Why have, we, why have we got a belly? We have a belly in order that it might be fed. It is an appetite. And the Apostle Paul reminds them, 
but all things are not expedient. Of course, all things are not lawful absolutely. We have the Ten Commandments. They are to be obeyed. But he says all things are not expedient. If you were to take this argument to its logical conclusion then, if you were to go by this argument that all things are lawful unto me and that I can satisfy my appetites as much as I want, then you would be promoting gluttony and you may well be promoting drunkenness. And as they were, they were promoting fornication. What the Apostle Paul is reminding them is, yes, they have these appetites, these God-given appetites, but all things are not expedient. You are to control your appetites. You are not to become a slave to your appetites. Once upon a time, you were a slave to sin. Yes, that's what the scriptures teach us. If we are in Christ, we have been delivered from the guilt and the power and the dominion of sin. Our lives have changed. We are now free to obey and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are not to subject ourselves to another kind of bondage to our appetites, the very appetites that God has given to us. No, we are to master them. They are not to master us. So what he's obviously talking about here is gluttony is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. And fornication is a sin also. And the, Christ, the Christians in Corinth, they are not to be taken slavery to these appetites. They are to rule over them. And he reminds them that these desires are only temporary. What does he say in verse 13? But God shall destroy both it and them. God shall in some sense, destroy the belly. Not completely. In the resurrection body, there is, a, there is a, a belly. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ was able to eat. But the point is, in the resurrection, in the new world, when we shall be raised like Christ's glorious body, there will be no need to eat. The body will be able to eat, yes, but there will be no need. There will be no appetite for food. And that's what the Apostle Paul is reminding them. That these desires that they have for food and for drink and for sexual activity are only temporary. And as we know, friends, there will, there will be no procreation in the world that is to come. We, will, we shall be like angels who do not, in any sense, procreate. Well, that's the principles of the body. They are to have their desires under control. They are not to be mastered by these desires. Instead, they are to control over them. He reminds them again about the purpose of the body. What does he say in verse 13? Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. What's our bodies for? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
This is why we're on this earth. This is why we have been created. This is why we have a body. We are to glorify God in our bodies. We are to recognize, as we shall see later on, that this is the whole purpose in our existence and in our redemption. Because before, when we were living a life of sin, living in the world, we were not glorifying God. We were serving another master. And we were not fulfilling our fit and true purpose. You are to glorify God in your body. This is probably a, a reaction to the dualism that can be found in the Greek and the Roman uh, era. There was a basic thing taught by many of their philosophers that the body is evil, whereas the soul, it is good. And they saw a dichotomy between the soul and the body. And basically they would teach it doesn't matter what you do in the body, it's evil anyway, and it's going to be destroyed, it's going to return to the dust. It's the soul that matters, or your spirit. And therefore you are to be concerned about that, rather than your body. That Christian theology teaches us something completely different. When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, our souls are saved, our souls are redeemed. And that's a present day experience for the Christian. And we wait for that glorious day when our bodies shall be redeemed. Because Christian salvation redeems the body and the soul. In the new world that is to come, we will have a body and soul. And we shall worship the Lord in purity and holiness and serve him perfectly with a renewed body and a cleansed soul. And even now, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we are to be careful with our bodies. We are to be careful with our minds. I don't wish to flatter any of my immediate audience here, but I do believe the subject of fornication is not something that is readily applicable to the vast majority of my immediate hearers. But the lessons and the principles can be learned. Our bodies are to be dedicated to the Lord and to his service. Our minds. We are to be very careful what we do with our minds. We are to be very careful what we see with our eyes. We might not commit physical fornication, but it's so easy, friends, to commit online fornication with our eyes. It's so easy to click on something and to see something that's totally inappropriate, although in some sense we are detached from it, but nevertheless we see it, and in some sense we engage in it and approve of it. Our bodies the totality of our bodies, our minds, our eyes, our mouths, our tongues, our lips, everything. We are to glorify God. That's the purpose of our bodies. 
and it's not to be used for any sinful activity, whether it be sexual or otherwise. And we are not to feed their appetites. We are to master them. Even these God-given, lawful and legitimate appetites that he has given to every single human being, which makes us indeed human. He goes on, perversion of the body, verses 15 to 18. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Here we are, friends, we're talking about something mysterious. It's something we cannot readily explain or expand upon. But the Bible teaches us that when we come to true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a union between the believer and Christ. It's a mystical union. We are joined together with Christ. And that union cannot be dissolved. It's forever. We are permanently united to Christ. Our head is in heaven. And in some sense, we are with him. And we can never really be ultimately separated from him. That's what the Bible would teach us. And that's what Paul is hammering home to these Corinthians. When you join yourself together with a harlot, you are in some sense joining Christ with the harlot. You can see how serious it is. And you can see the, the unique privilege that the Christian has, that we are united to Christ forever. He takes us to himself. We are part of his body. And therefore, you are to be careful what you do with your body. The act of sexual intercourse is mysterious. But the Bible teaches us that when two come together in the act of sexual intercourse, there is intimacy, there is one flesh, there is a union there is a sharing of life, one flesh. Can you imagine then that a Christian committing fornication and joining Christ to a harlot? This is what he's saying. It's a perversion of the body. Believers, you need to recognize that you have a unique, a special a union that cannot be dissolved with the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes you into himself. And that's a privilege. And that privilege comes with responsibilities that you must not in any sense disrupt or pervert that union. And you therefore, they were, were to make sure that they would avoid any kind of union with a heart. It's offensive, is it not? And therefore, believers should flee sexual sins. That's the counsel that he has given them there, to flee these things. And we need to flee these things also, because these sins are rampant in our day and generation. 
And there are some Christians who take the kind of teaching that they're free. They're free to live any way they like. It's a lawless freedom that they can indulge in anything without impunity. Not so. Believers are to flee these things and other things for they are to be reminded of their unique and special union with Jesus Christ the Lord. He also goes on in verses 19 to 20 at the end. He talks about the possession of the body. Believers are indwelt by God. God the Holy Spirit is in the believer. This is the distinguishing mark of the Christian. This is what divides him from the rest of humanity. Again, mysterious. We cannot explain this or fully expound it, but nevertheless, it is taught in the scriptures. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. And canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is it with the Holy Spirit, Jesus said to Nicodemus. And he was talking in the context of being born again. But that's what happens when someone is born again. The Spirit of God comes into that person. And the Spirit of God takes up permanent residence with that person. The Spirit of God never leaves that person. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost, we are told. This is, again, something unique, something splendid, something glorious. God takes up residence in the heart, in the life, in the body of the Christian. And believers are bought by God. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. These are the things that he wishes to, them, to bring to the attention of these early first century Christians. To wean them away from the culture and from the practice that was all around them. And this would remind us, friends, would it not, that real Christianity, biblical Christianity... Holy Ghost Christianity is radical. It stands out from the world. And maybe this is one thing that's wrong with so-called Christianity today. It's no longer radical. It's no longer counter-culture. It now seems to merge in with the culture and tries to be assimilated in the culture instead of standing up and saying, no, we have another way, a better way, the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this section, therefore, he tells them to consider God the Father. Consider. He created your bodies. He will resurrect them. There's something unique and special about the human body, the physical body. But what... A wonderful thing it will be, the resurrection body. Glorious. He'll be like the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be able to serve him perfectly in holiness. 
We will serve, we will work for him throughout the whole of the universe. And we will have a body that's fit and capable to do that. Therefore, be very, very careful what you do with your bodies. The body has a great origin and a more wonderful future, as one commentator said. God is the creator, and one day he will, in some sense, recreate it, a spiritual body, a glorious body. And don't listen to the, the teachings of this world that will tell you the body doesn't matter. The body does matter. It has been created by God for a purpose. Consider also the work of the Son. You know, he's impressing upon the, the Corinthian Christians here the, the fact that the whole of the Trinity is involved here. God is the one who has created our body. Consider the work of the Son. The believer's body is united to Christ. Never to be separated. Never. We're told in our catechism. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? What benefits? The question itself kind of rises up in our minds. What benefit could we possibly get at death? But the answer is clear. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. The body is special to Christ. He's not just redeemed our souls, but our bodies. What a thought. Therefore, we must be very, very careful. And we must be reminded that we were redeemed at an enormous cost. It wasn't an angel that came. It wasn't a holy angel that came. It wasn't a legion of angels that came to redeem mankind, for none of them could do it. It would be impossible. It was God the Son who took our nature, our form, and became like us and underwent all that he did. And I'm firmly of the opinion, friends, that he needed to do all that he did. God could not, in any sense, redeem mankind by any other way. That's my opinion. That's what I believe the Bible teaches us. We know that God is absolutely sovereign. And some will say, well, because he's sovereign, he could have chose another way to redeem mankind. I'm not of that opinion. This was the way. This is the only way. His son had to become like us. His son had to come to this world and take upon our form and flesh. He had to live a perfect life in the flesh. And he had to die the death of the sinner although he himself was absolutely sinless. He had to do it because he was our substitute. And he could only be our substitute if he was just like us. And when we believe upon the Lord Jesus, what happens? 
we receive his righteousness. He obeyed God's law perfectly, absolutely perfectly, in thought, in word, and in deed. And that righteousness is given to the Christian. And not only that, friends, when he suffered in Calvary, he suffered. He suffered the pains of hell. He suffered what every single one of us deserves to suffer. He was our substitute. And he suffered so that we would not suffer. Are you then going to use your body for sinful, sensual pleasures to gratify the appetites that God has given to you to be a to be mastered by these things instead of having them under control. Consider also finally the Holy Spirit. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Again, a mysterious thing but clearly taught in God's word. The Christian walks around with the Holy Spirit resident in his heart. We acknowledge sometimes we are not aware of it, and we might well doubt it, God's word does not fail. And therefore it reminds us that whatever we do, whatever we go, whatever we think, whatever we say, whatever action we undertake, we have someone who is with us, who's in us, who knows exactly what's going on. Is this not a motivation then for holiness? Is this not a motivation for self-examination? What kind of lives are we living? Are we slaves then to our appetites? Or have we mastered them? Have we got them under control? Is our life, is our body there dedicated to the service of God? Maybe you know nothing of this. Maybe this is all new to you. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you are still under sin and under the dominion of sin. What can you do? Well, you must do what the Christians did in, at Corinth. You must come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be found in him. You must call upon him that he would save you that he would change you, that he would give you a new life and a new heart, give you new motives, make you a new creation. That's the beauty of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ is still the power of God and the salvation. And you are urged to come to him. And when you truly come to him and put into practice his word, his teaching, then you will know true Christian freedom. And what is true Christian freedom? It is to be free from sin, 
free from sin. What a glorious message. What a wonderful Savior. True Christian freedom is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Amen. And may God bless to us his word. Let us pray together. Lord, we bless thee for thy word. We pray again for the Spirit's illumination, that our understanding might increase, that our love for the truth might grow, and that our obedience to it might flourish, even in these days of decline and declension. Hear our prayers. Be with us now as we conclude in praise. For the Redeemer's sake. Amen.